Good morning. This is a fascinating uh, passage uh, where uh, Peter is writing to a range of churches uh, around the Mediterranean and um, and he's, he's really asking them to, to remember who they are and to behave themselves. And it's interesting because the, sh- the world is, is not short of voices telling the church uh, to behave itself. There seems to be uh, that sense of justice uh, that we talked about runs through each and every one of us um, throughout the world as well. They seem to have something of an intuitive barometer of the way the church should be. And they're not wrong, to be honest, because we have 2,000 years of church history and there are times when uh, the church has, in relation to the state and to other people, behaved in a profoundly um, well, evil manner. Um, and in those moments, it has um, not lived up to its true nature and to its true self. In other words, this body of Christians has been deeply uh, unchristian. But what we're doing, I don't want to deal with all that history just yet, but right back at the beginning here, we find the example of um, Peter writing to a bunch of new communities and encouraging them uh, to, to live up to their own standard. But But he's not moralizing with them. You remember I talked a few weeks ago about the fact that uh, we live in a society that has this paradox going on at the same time, where we are forever not wanting to be moralized to, and yet we are forever calling everyone around us to a certain moral standard. We are pointing out when people have failed that standard, historically and recently and in our lives, and yet we still are very adverse to being told about that standard or reminded of it ourselves. And that's one of the dangers of, of um, religion is that it becomes merely a moralizing rule. Christianity is not that. It's something else. It's the good news of grace. And so when Peter is writing to these particular churches and he's talking about them in these words, saying, you are chosen people, you are a royal priesthood, and you are a holy nation, using that language. He's not really moralizing to them, and yet he is reminding them and calling them to a certain standard. The whole book of of Peter, this letter of, of, of 1 Peter in particular, but 2 Peter 2 is a really helpful, it's an often overlooked small letter towards the end of the New Testament, but it's a really helpful reminder of what it means to be a distinctive people uh, in the world. The cultures of the world are diverse and the world is changing through history and so there's bound to be times when the Christian message complements and fits really, really well with the culture and there will be other times when it clashes. There are some times when the culture will applaud the church and there are times when it will persecute the church. And they are different standards at different times in different cultures around the world. And so this is incredibly important that the church doesn't become a weather vane. That is, taking its cues and standards and beliefs from the culture but instead has something more steadfast 
and eternal, something like the language in this passage, a cornerstone. But this is really interesting, particularly in this little part, because of the word uh, holy. Peter says to them, this small little church, he says, you are a holy nation. Now, we know that the Christian church grew up out of, uh, if you like, the, the nation of Israel, God's chosen people. Uh, and then Jesus comes as the chosen one amongst the people of Israel, but then all Gentiles are called in to be God's people as well. And really fascinatingly, though, he's not talking to Jewish people at this particular point. He's actually talking mostly to these little fledgling Gentile church communities. And he's saying to them, hey, you are a holy nation. And he is saying to us this morning, here in Melbourne, our fledgling community of faithful people and, and me, <laughs> you are a holy nation a chosen people, a royal priesthood. Uh, Look at this, God's special possession that you might declare the praises of him to the culture. I want to push into this word holy for a little bit and see if it might help us to think about what it means for us to be a holy community, a holy community. We can't help but think when we think about that of a pious community or a moralistic community. And it already feels to me, even as I'm saying it, like an anathema to the kind of community I want to be, which is an authentic community or a real community, not a pious community, the kind of community that stands behind a pulpit like, or maybe even a pulpit like this. (laughs) Wow, look at that pulpit. (laughs) I'm not worthy of that pulpit. (laughs) You know what I mean? It speaks down to the culture of the way it should be. The world certainly doesn't want a church like that, but if we're honest, it doesn't want anyone like that. None of us want to be spoken to in that tone, but thankfully that's not what's going on here. In fact, Peter's not talking to the world at all. This is an inward letter. He's talking to us, to the church, and he's saying, I want you to remember that you are a holy people. Now, what does this word holy mean? Well, strictly meaning, it means set apart, to be put aside for a particular purpose, to be given a role that's separate. It's not necessarily about moralism. In fact, if you think about it, things that are set apart, like for for sacred purposes, particularly in the Old Testament, you think about the the particular tabernacle that was set apart and the temple and the altar, they, they can't be moral things because they're objects. Objects can't be moral. And so the true meaning of that holiness is that sense of being set apart for a special sacred purpose, if you like. And so what he's calling the people to do at this particular point is remember that you're a people who have been set apart. In fact, he says you're a people who have been called out for a particular purpose. And the language that, that he uses at this point is um, laced with all sorts of wonderful meanings that we could draw from. I haven't got time to even go into all of them, but again and again and again in the Old Testament, um, God is reminding his people that they are a, a chosen people and that they have been called out for a distinct purpose. In fact, the, even the idea that they're given um, the Ten Commandments is to show them the way of living flourishingly 
to be a witness to the nations. And then even the fact that they're given amongst them the Sabbath, that you would have a Sabbath and God declares a particular day of the week holy, isn't that they're supposed to just simply um, not do a range of things they would normally do on a Sunday, but he gives it to them as a distinctive marker of who they are as a people. Think about how precious it is to be a people whose distinctive marker is that you rest and then you are taken into slavery. They go into slavery in Egypt and then they go into slavery, you know, beforehand and then they go into slavery again later on Babylon. And under the massive tyranny and oppression of them to work and to produce for the empire, they say, no, no, no. We are God's people and we have this distinctive marker. We rest. And it just keeps them separate. It keeps them distinctive. It becomes a marker. We are not people who just work endlessly for God. We are people who rest and worship God because everything comes from God. And so we must stop and acknowledge that. And So these wonderful, every little part of the thing that God gives them, circumcision is part of that as well, and all these other things are there to remind them that they are a distinct people. Now, so many of these things are transformed and renewed in, in different ways into the New Testament. But you see, he picks up the same language. You are a holy people. You are a priesthood. You are a chosen people. You can just imagine this small community uh, in a Mediterranean village receiving this and going, wow, okay, so what does this mean for the way we live uh, amongst our neighbours and our friends? Well, as the church over history um, has gone on, it has really wrestled with that question. How distinctive are we supposed to be from the culture around about us? Are we supposed to blend in and be relevant? Or are we supposed to hide away in a cluster and a bubble? And in different cultures at different times over the years, the church has adopted different postures. In fact, even today, different denominations and movements answer this question in different ways. Sometimes a view says we should be as spread as thin as possible and integrated with the culture as much as possible in order to be like yeast in the culture. And other times they feel like they need to cluster and go away and live in the wilderness and enclosed communities. And as we've started to analyze this, there's a book uh, many years ago, about 50 years ago, by Richard Niebuhr, and, and he talked, it was, his book was called Christ and Culture. And he gave a whole range of really interesting models about the different ways that the church has belonged in relation to the culture around about it. I won't take you through all the models, but I'll mention two of them, the two kind of headline ones. One is the Christ of culture, um, and the other one is the Christ against culture. Let me go with the Christ against culture first. This is one that you may be more familiar with. Particularly as we've come over the last few hundred years, there has always been communities that are highly suspicious of the culture around about them. And they've tried basically to condemn the culture and withdraw from it as much as possible. The classic 
kind of example of this that you can think of is the Amish. You know the Amish people? These are people who come into a new world, into America, but then decide to cloister away from the developments of the 19th and 20th century. And so they actually hold on to a culture in their community um, or the, around the 18th, 19th century, and they, they cluster themselves away from iPhones and computers and multimedia and everything that's developed since. The, do you see that? It's a Christ against culture. They're like, if we can have a, a, a community and we could live with a particular distinctive bond and covenant to one another, then we will protect ourselves and we'll protect our children from the wider world. Now, it sounds extreme, but I tell you what, when I'm trying to manage the iPhone use of my kids, every now and then I'm tempted (laughs) to go join an Amish community. Part of me thinks, you know what, I think this might be refreshing, even just for a week, you know what I mean? But then you get there and after a week you'd be like, and can I please just go get a can opener? Like, is that allowed? (laughs) Now, you see what they're doing there? They're drawing an arbitrary line. They're saying, okay, here's the culture. We're not going to go any, we're not going to develop anymore with that wider culture. We're going to separate ourselves off and be a distinctive people. In other views, you can find in other little movements this kind of mentality. I remember my wife was brought up in a brethren community. And even though it was not a, a closed brethren community, which is even more extreme, it was more, you know, sort of more moderate, um, still there was no television. And there was certainly no v, you know, VHS videos down from the video store, which would have been a bit of a waste of time if you didn't have a television. <laughs> but also, she remembers wanting to go to the, the movies and her grandfather saying to her, well, what will happen if Jesus comes back while you're in the movies? You'll be, you'll be left behind. Huh? Do, do you hear the thinking going on there? Not to mention this kind of rapture kind of idea of, you know, but this idea that she's in the movies, so she's engaging in the culture. If she's in the culture doing something sinful like that, well, then we can't. Now, you, you may gasp at that, but many of you would remember the no dancing uh, or, or, you know, no, no playing sport on Sundays. You know, these lines through culture, um, there's, a, there's a particular Bible college um, in another state and uh, <laughs> and the land was gifted to the to be the bible college as long as there was no smoking no drinking and no dancing that happened on the property and and i think what what is what is it with you know what i mean you can see there's there's a particular arbitrary line that's going on there now whenever i'd go visit this particular bible college for a guest lecture i'd get out of the car and do a little dance just to sort of defy <laughs> Because it just seems so stupid, you know. The, the <laughs> you know what I mean? No dancing, really. David dance. Haven't they watched Footloose? David danced before the Lord. Anyway, so but you can see there is there are these lines that have happened, and and we have different lines for different things. Some of you will be very comfortable drinking alcohol and realize Jesus drank alcohol, and if you have a Presbyterian heritage, then it's part of it. It's in the sacrament sometimes of of some denominations, uh, and then for other. People like the family I grew up in, no alcohol. Alcohol was equated with the culture. And many of you would hold to that. And if you come from uh, the, more, the, the particular line of the faith and Methodist and so forth, because of the ministry and the emphasis, they did that as well. Of course, John Wesley himself drank alcohol, but said we shouldn't have tea because it was too exclusive. 
So that kind of messes with your mind a little bit, doesn't it? <laughs> Methodist church was built on tea, but <laughs> he didn't have it. Anyway, it goes on. So we have these arbitrary lines, and, and they can be for good purposes and at good times, but the thing is there are movements where we pull back from the culture. No one says you should be just the same as the world, but sometimes we go to extremes in different areas for different times and, and for different purposes. And it's perfectly fine, but you want to be thoughtful. Why are we doing this? And if you take an extreme view against the culture, then you're, that's a Christ against culture. And it can come out of a fear of the world infecting and making me or our young people unholy. You know what I mean? We can't go there because of the way in which they'll catch sin. The trouble is, of course, as these cloistered communities um, forget that they carry with them into their communities the human heart. And so sin tends to <laughs> permeate in particular ways, perhaps different ways, highly patriarchal ways and other tyrannous and abusive, manipulative ways on occasion. But then there's the other extreme through history. We have other movements and times which is embodied in, in his category of the Christ of culture. And these are times when Christianity is, is, is spread throughout the culture in what seems to be a very acceptable form but ends up having a very minor influence. There are, this is the sort of language when you hear people talking about a Christian nation. And we find this illustration in the United States. Now, it is true because of the revivals and the great awakenings, there's a higher percentage of, of um, faith-believing Christian people in America than, say, in Australia or, paradoxically, many parts of Europe. However, a lot of the rhetoric of God that goes on around America on their money and so forth doesn't come from a distinctly Christian call. It comes from a more broad, deistic kind of view of the founding fathers. Deism is this idea that there is a God who created the world and then he pretty much took his hands off and went to sleep. It doesn't go anywhere near as a Lord, Saviour, Jesus Christ, who came to die and to redeem the world. But so the language of God permeates. You know that. You watch television. Americans talk about God this and God that and God the other. And and you, and you kind of want it. You go, wow, that's fantastic. But you've got to go, well, how deep does that go? Or is it just this broad language? And Australia, because of the, the way Christendom has evolved, has had a sense of that, although that is fading. The reason we've got it, of course, is because of the British Empire. And notionally, of course, and originally, authentically, the British Empire was a Christian empire. But what you find out is that when you combine the state with a religion like that, the, the religion ends up subsuming itself within the state. And it does have a strong influence on the state, but that influence can wane and be limited. It also means that you can end up just blessing things that the state does, like going to war, when frankly there was nothing there to be blessed whatsoever. And so what we find through, if you think through the language, I remember watching a television show called Upstairs, Downstairs. Does anyone remember that from the 1970s? And them talking about the world upstairs and the world downstairs in a gentleman's home. And Rose the parlourmaid was talking about the fact that she was so honoured to be working in the house of a gentleman uh, who was a member of, of His Majesty's you know, government uh, and His Majesty who, who un, was appointed by God, was God's chosen to be the king 
uh, of an, uh, an empire in which the sun would never set. So you see the language of power and of royalty uh, and of establishment and Christianity kind of laced over it. Yes, it's influencing it, but that influence has traditionally been shown to be less effective when decisions are made and when countries go to war or when other things occur. There can be a lot of ceremonial talk of Christianity. We find this in some private schools. There's a lot of language of God and history and of the church that's laced, but how much is distinctly Christian that's embraced or encouraged in the life of it as well? A greater and lesser degree in some places uh, than others. And so this notion of the Christ of culture um, can be very weak. One asked example, of course, is Germany. Germany through the 1930s and so forth, which is a Christian nation. I mean, already we had in World War I, one Christian nation fighting another Christian nation fighting another Christian nation. And disillusionment with the church reached an apex after World War I with the slaughter and the way in which the church seemed to unquestionably affirm what was, seems to be a senseless war. But then we look at nations like a Christian nation like Germany goes into World War II and the tyrant of Hitler and of the Nazi regime and the Third Reich and the anti-Semitism and the church seems so passive and you'd walk into a German church and there's a cross with two Nazi flags either side of it. We look at it now with the perspective of history and go, how on earth? But at the time, it was too weak, it was too spread. This is a state church that was run on the taxes of the people, the Protestant church, the Lutheran church. And out of the midst of that hypocrisy, there were a small cluster of what we call the confessing church. And they gathered together, Diedrich Bonhoeffer and Karl Barth were influential voices in this, who came together and said, no, no, Hitler, you are not Fuhrer. Fuhrer means leader. Jesus is our only Fuhrer. And they formed an underground confessing church and had an incredible influence on the discipleship movements that came afterwards. They called themselves out of the culture at that particular point and said, we must be holy. We are a holy nation. We are a chosen people. We are not called to simply just bless and applaud whatever the world is saying at this point. And so this balance goes on through history. How much do we reach out to influence the world but then risk being uh, domesticated by the world? And how much do we pull apart to be holy but then risk being separate from the world? And this call is upon us all the time. What does it really mean for us to be a holy church, to be a distinctive people? to not be mimicking and domesticated by the world, but then not to be cloistered away irrelevant to the world. Well, as always, the great example for this is the Lord Jesus. Because Peter's call to them at that point is not to be holy like they should be holy like him, but holy like God. In other words, be like the one who has founded you, your cornerstone, which is Jesus. For we actually are called to be a Jesus people, the body of Christ. 
And Jesus is a fantastic example of what it means for us to be present in the world and yet distinctive in the world. Jesus is the Holy One. And if we want to know how the church should be, then we should look at Jesus. If we want to know what our community should be like, don't look to Tim, I'll let you down. I'll try and be an example, but all I'll be doing is looking at Jesus. And if we see a disconnect between our church and Jesus, then we have somewhere to move. Sometimes it might feel as if our church is too cloistered away and we look at the Lord Jesus and we see him in the homes of tax collectors. We see him sitting with prostitutes. We see him sitting with those who are downtrodden and we say, we are too cloistered. We must become more present with the world and line up with Jesus. There'll be other times when we look at Jesus and we see that, oh no, look, Jesus, here he is. He's not actually a drunkard and he's not actually a glutton and he actually doesn't have a whole bunch of money saved away. And We look at Jesus and the teachings of Jesus and we go, oh, hang on a second, we have become too much like the world, too present. We must line up again with Jesus. Again, remember, this is not moralizing to the world. This is us aligning within ourselves our inner integrity because we are Jesus' people. We are called to be Jesus' people. And in fact, the world actually gets that sometimes more clearly than we get it. Because they stand back and they look at the church and then they look at Jesus and they go, you guys are not lining up. And that's when royal commissions begin, rightly where we have failed to live like our Jesus. I was listening to a podcast this week and Clive James, you remember Clive James? Clive James is an atheist. Uh, He's not a believer. Um, And yet he has said that he's become quite obsessed and interested in Jesus. He talks about the church and what has happened over time and, and Jesus. And he wrote this. Let me read this quote to you. He said, When humanism came, everything that the churches had ever taught came in for half a millennium of questioning, until finally the only thing that was left unquestioned was the person of Jesus. Paradoxically, the humanists who had set out to undermine Christian belief had reinforced the person at its very centre. I have faith that his ideal lives on. All the Christian denominations are lucky to have him, and the rest of us are lucky to have him too. I am constantly giving him much thought. He proved his capacity for sacrifice when he faced the crowd who wanted to stone the woman to death for adultery. It was a turning point in history because nothing quite like that had ever been recorded before. Standing up to the crowd showed that he was brave, but also it was his generosity of intervention that set a new mark. He set that mark again when he promised to place a prostitute in heaven next to him who had washed his feet. Imagine the whispering abuse he copped for that. Imagine the shouted abuse. I first heard about this person, Jesus, and these things in Bible class when I was a child. But no matter how intolerant the church got in history, they have failed to wipe away the impression of his understanding spirit. The essence of his personality is for us a salvation, a redemption. It gives us a measure for how to live our lives on earth. We should therefore treasure all religious remnants that don't conflict with the mercy and comprehending nature of the man who was the beginning of it all. And he says, shares this personally. He says, 
My granddaughter is learning about Jesus. Her parents are believers in the traditional sense, even as I am not. And there may come a time when she does not believe in that sense either. Who knows? But one still, there will still be one important thing that even I will be able to continue to tell her, which is that Jesus, the first great man to be a champion of women in history, believed in her. This is a man of no faith, and yet a man who sees the distinctiveness of Jesus and the way he has shaped history and his beauty and his elegance. Friends, we need to keep our eyes on Jesus. The only failing in Clive James's call, of course, is that he only has Jesus as a moral standard. And of course, the Christian is not someone who takes Jesus merely as a moral standard but actually believes that Jesus has come and done something for us that we could never do for ourselves. Jesus has come and said the gospel, which is that we are more sinful and flawed in ourselves actually than we ever dared believe. And yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus than we ever dared hope. At the very end of his ministry uh, in John He stands and he says to the people, sorry, to God, for their sakes I sanctify myself that they may be sanctified. He says this going to the cross. I sanctify myself even as my people will be sanctified. What he's saying there, the word sanctify just means holy. I now separate myself off to do this thing, this death on the cross for God, even as they in this will be chosen and will become holy. God has called you. We do not become holy through our moral efforts, but we do remain aligned to the beauty and the morality, the high calling of righteousness in Jesus, if Jesus remains our Lord. But we do not become a holy people through our own efforts. We come, uh, become a holy people because the Holy One has said, even as I sanctify myself, I sanctify you. Come and be my people. Come and be chosen. I'll finish with this line, which comes from uh, Ezekiel talking to the people of God. And he says to them, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will remove from your heart the heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh, and I'll put my spirit in you. We are the people of God, which means we do not have to strive for a morality but we are the people with God's spirit in us speaking and witnessing to us of the Lord Jesus Christ the spirit who enables love and joy and peace and patience and who witnesses to us again and again and again I have called you I have chosen you walk in step and stride with me in love and mercy and grace let's pray Loving and gracious God, I thank you that you are not a God who is far, but a God who has come near to us. And so, Lord, you have sent us to be near to our community and our world around us, but also to be distinctive, to not judge where we see judgment, to be a people, a community of grace. As we pause for a moment As the music just plays, let's contemplate and sit and, Lord, by your Spirit, speak to us. Where might there be a realignment in our life?
and in our church. Let's just take a minute. Let's sit. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And the gift of the Lord Jesus Christ and his spirit in our lives, bringing freedom and liberation and making us more like Jesus. Not of our own doing, it is a gift of God.